And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me today is Pastor Kevin Sherritt, Senior Pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Kevin, it's great to have you here. Good to be with you, Dan. You know, today is Armed Forces Day in the United States, and uh, many Americans celebrate our armed forces um, each each day on the third Saturday of May, and we, we do pay tribute to the men and women who serve the United States Armed Forces, and I um, thought maybe we'd just talk about that a little bit. Um, Kevin, is it, um, let me just throw this out right away to get us started, is it is it legitimate for uh a Christian man or woman to uh, join the armed forces and, and serve in the armed forces? Well, Dan, the short answer is yes, though that has been disputed in the history of the church. Some in the early church felt it wasn't, and then again at the time of the Reformation, uh, we had the Anabaptists who felt it was not lawful for Christians to in any way bear the sword, but uh, the tradition in which I stand and which has had... Uh, great and widespread influence in in the United States, Um, the Reformed tradition, in our confessional documents, uh, chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, of the civil magistrate, it says it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto. And so it roots this idea in in a number of scriptural texts, the idea that Joseph was called to a magisterial position of rulership in Egypt. We know the same thing was done by Daniel in Babylon. Um, There are other situations where we can see uh, what at least seems to be a tacit affirmation of the calling of soldiers and centurions in the Gospels when Jesus embraces them. For example, John and says of the centurion, I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. Um, It would be odd for Jesus to encounter the centurion, heal his child, and allow him to remain in an intrinsically evil or unlawful profession. Same thing with John the Baptist. When John the Baptist preaches and the soldiers come to him and they say, what should we do in response to your message? He says things like, uh, you know, don't, don't extort anyone, don't do any violence, be content with your wages. So the Reformed tradition, and with it, large swaths of Protestantism, and I, and I believe uh, I believe contemporary Roman Catholicism, see it as lawful for a Christian to be a soldier. Um, there are a couple of reasons for this. One is uh, there's a distinction made between the spiritual kingdom of Christ, over which he rules as mediator in and through the church, and the sort of general civic public kingdom over which God reigns as king, Uh, in the political wider sphere. And so in a sense, a Christian lives in two kingdoms. And if you don't make this distinction and you simply say, well, Jesus said uh, we are to turn the other cheek and therefore we must renounce all violence, therefore we cannot be soldiers or we cannot be civil magistrates, we cannot fight or authorize fighting, in one sense it's the same sort of argument, being a magistrate and or a soldier. It is, can a Christian in the public civic realm use or authorize force and as I've said before um, I think the witness of scripture is that they can but it's only done when you recognize that there is a common realm a realm of common grace that we share with unbelievers and people of other faiths 
in which sometimes just war has to be waged. This goes all the way back to Genesis 9, uh, verse 6, where in the making of the Noahic covenant, God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And so there's this requirement in the natural realm of the state for proportionate justice. And the images of God are called to exercise that duty. Now, uh, just a sidelight here, I know that one of your own sons has served in the military. One of my sons served in Jordan and in Afghanistan and in the National Guard, yes. I'm very proud of him. And I know that also uh, many churches will remember in prayer their soldiers from the church that are out, however they are deployed, right. in prayer. And during the time of praying for them, and the, you know, during the worship service, their, their names are, are mentioned. I know that happens at Westminster regularly. Well, Paul charges us in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for kings and for all those who are in authority. And clearly, if we are to pray for the civil magistrate, then we ought to pray for those whom he deploys into harm's way. Um, and he asks for us to pray for those things, uh, not because we are trying to merge church and state, but simply because we are, as Christians, called to a kind of humble and supportive, uh, yet occasionally critical, uh, love of our country, a kind of patriotism that doesn't spill over into a blind nationalism, but embraces the goods that we've, we've received and prays for God's continued blessing. Paul says we should pray there so that we can live in all quietness and dignity. So we pray for the civil magistrate. We pray for them, as Paul says, there to come to the knowledge of the truth because God desires all men to be saved and for them to govern in such a way that we can live in quietness and dignity and peace. And in praying for them, we pray as well for the troops who are, if you will, the arm of the magistrate. I'm talking today with uh, Dr. Kevin Sherritt, Senior Pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York, and we're talking about Armed Forces Day, which is today. It's celebrated today, May the 16th. And uh, I was just looking back at some history, Kevin, and in 1949, uh, Lewis Johnson, who was the United States Secretary of Defense, announced the creation of an Armed Forces Day to replace separate Army, Navy, and Air Force Days. So uh, this celebration goes back a little bit here, uh, certainly before I was born. Not much before I was born. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, church and state is always an interesting uh, area of discussion. Uh, How are we to think about church and state? Sometimes I I get the feeling like um, it's thrown back in the Christian's face when uh, secularists don't want to hear about any kind of an influence from Christianity to the state. And uh, how, how are we to look at church and state? It may be too big of a question for this episode of A Plain Answer, but maybe we could get started a little bit on it. Sure, I think it is a, it's a very big question, and it has its own complexities and pitfalls. But I think a short answer would be there is a distinction or a separation between the two realms. The church is not the state and the state is not the church. 
Our confessional documents, which I alluded to earlier, make this very clear. The civil magistrate has no authority to administer the word or the sacraments or the discipline of the church. And the church has no grounds to say to the civil magistrate, we're superior to you, we're above the law. You know, we're the spiritual realm and you're the temporal realm and therefore we're not bound by you. So there's a kind of mutual um, subjection to one another and recognition that there are realms here that are inviolable. However, the, the key insight which tends to be lost in the modern realm is that while at least for a few hundred years Christians have acknowledged this institutional separation of church and state in the West, and as an aside, as a mere matter of separation, that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The kings couldn't do what the priests did, and mm. the priests couldn't do what the kings did. There were, the, the notion of institutional separation is in the ancient Hebrew books. Um, but the key point is that both the church and the state are under the rule of God the king. Right? So separation of church and state is not you know, an intrinsic denial of the Christian vision of reality. It's just the way it works itself out institutionally. And it's a blessed and a wonderful thing, uh, the, the separation rightly understood. Now, in America, it has come to mean, as you alluded to, no Christian influence or voice in the public square. Uh, Richard, Richard John Newhouse, the uh, founding editor of First Things magazine, wrote a book, must be 20-some years ago now, if not more, called the naked public square, meaning secularism wants the public square to be naked, meaning have no religious representation in it. Mm. Um, And it's an impossible thing because you essentially end up with nothing but anti-religious representation in it. So maybe another way to put this is the institutional separation between church and state does not mean the cultural segregation of Christianity from politics, mm-hmm. right? Christianity and politics have always mixed, as have all sorts of other views um, in, in American political life, and they influence and impact it. But there's no institutional um, melding of church and state, but clearly there's a leavening, a, an illumining influence of Christianity that is to be exercised in the public square, and that has been attacked and assaulted under the name of, wrongly, under the guise of separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. That original separation of church and state really had to do with a concern of, um, I think, some Baptists, uh, trying to remember how that went. They were, they were concerned that the state would have a heavy hand in, in determining their own rights right. and, and, and practices. Right, and Jefferson wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptists assuring yeah. them, and that's where he uses the phrase, a wall of separation. It's not a, not a constitutional phrase. But the idea that the, the church has a kind of protection is right in the First Amendment, which has been viewed as our first freedom. There's a, a Congress shall make no law yeah. you know, respecting you know, the establishment of a religion or the free exercise thereof. And so that's a wonderful thing, the First Amendment, and it's a gift to us uh, from the Founding Fathers. Yeah, it's true. And it's interesting. Uh, today we brought the microphones to uh, to your office. We're actually not in the Redeemer studio. And so I'm, I'm surrounded by uh, walls of books, and in front of me on the desk, 
interestingly, is is a copy of the U.S. Constitution, and it's right here. Yes, <laughs> so I, I see you're you're well read in in these matters as well. Constitution is a wonderful document, and it is. It's um, given the fact that you know we don't live in Eden, and we don't live in Canaan, and we don't live in the new heavens and the new earth, but we live in a common realm shared with our neighbors, believers and unbelievers alike, a realm where. Um, we have to find a way to get along and, and make some space for one another. I think viewed in that light, the Constitution is a remarkable achievement, and it's a remarkable gift. It, now, it's been, of course, abused, and one might argue we're in some, some sort of a constitutional crisis. But it is something that, if adhered to, um, has been a tremendous blessing for the church. I'm thinking now about, we're, we're, we're talking about Armed Forces Day. I'm thinking about a young man, let's say he um, gets into the Army or Navy, whatever, and um, he's called into battle. And the, uh, the emotions, uh, the stress, um, what he has to go through, uh, or her, in uh, defending this nation. Let's say it's a just war. Let's just make it a little bit crisper and clearer. Let's say he's he's called to defend the nation in a just war, maybe similar to World War II even. And um, it has to be uh, extremely hard for that young man, not just to leave family, but to, um, to uh, actually pull the trigger, if you will, where he has to take life. Let's say uh, we're talking today with that young man, you know, here over the air, and um, how would how would we counsel him regarding his his duty um, a, as a soldier? He's in the army. He's called upon to execute a just war, and it's going to result in death of the enemy. Uh, how can he deal with that emotionally and and even spiritually? That's a good question. I think. While the emotional part is complicated and, and may take um, a while to work through afterwards, I do think health here, a healthy response in the soldier, is rooted in knowing that he has a just and good cause. Um, something of the trauma of war is probably tied to the fact that there's almost something eschatological about warfare. It's, it's um, faultlessly raw, uh, to the bone sort of uh, an affair that brings one face to face with death itself and thus questions of heaven and hell and glory and the like. And so that in itself is brings an intensity and a kind of trauma to it. But I think a soldier has to see that there are goods that are critical for men, for civilizations, for societies for human beings made in the image of God that in a fallen world can only be procured by the execution of just and proportionate force. These are not ultimate goods. It's important to see that. But they are penultimate goods. They are very important goods. They are goods like preserving freedom and religious liberty, right, and and delivering a people from tyranny. And they are goods which if we don't have them, the rest of the things we cherish in life 
can be destroyed. And so a soldier has to be convinced of that. He has to have that sort of sense of duty mm-hmm. and, and then a, a willingness to recognize that to procure those goods, um, wars may, under appropriate conditions, be fought and executed, and they must be fought and executed in such a way as to win. I think the more robust a conception a young man has of that, and that as a role which God blesses, not because God blesses violence or mm-hmm. because God is, is purely some you know, pagan god of war, but because in a fallen world, in a common realm, with evil, you sometimes must resist it for the greater good. It, it, and it is, that's, that's why we can have, as Augustine carved out and as the Western tradition has generally held, with, with dissenting voices to be sure, but generally held that there is such a thing as a just war. And um, such a war was fought in World War II, without which who knows how far Hitler would have gone. Yes. So I think a, a sense of one's rightness of the cause of the justice before the face of God and the fact that some evils will not be evicted from the earth except by force mm-hmm. are necessary for a person's health. But even then, then, even then, the the thing is so traumatic and in some ways contrary to what we were made for, right? That, um, you know, healing and um, the, the comfort that needs to come to such a man may take a long time and the right set of hands and helpers afterwards. And assuming he gets back from um, the battlefield and gets folded back into normal life, it seems a big part of his healing emotionally would come from being a part of the church and, and worshiping with God's people, assuming he's a Christian young man. Yes, I mean, the church is, an, is not an institution which bears the sword. It's an institution of healing and of grace and of the proclamation of the gospel. And so she exists to, to help weak and fallen human creatures um, in their vocation, in their pilgrimage in Christ toward the, the coming glorious city. And in, that, and in that sense, she is the best place for a traumatized soldier to be. Um, so I think you're right on that. So we're, we're talking today about Armed Forces Day, and um, we talked about the, the physical aspect of going to war um, and the idea of a just war. We haven't really defined what a just war is, but uh, that was in a, another broadcast on A Plain Answer a while ago. You can check our website on that. Now let's cross over it's a similar subject, but it's more in the spiritual realm, but it's very real. Um, we do battle every day as Christians. Can you help us there? Mm-hmm. Um, talk that through. Uh, what what kind of things do we face um, as we battle as a Christian um, in this world? Yes, it's, it's a good question because Christians, as mentioned, are not called to take up the sword uh, in the in the sense of um, to advance the kingdom of God. They may be called to be soldiers or civil magistrates and use the sword in the common realm to preserve 
a series of goods which are important but penultimate. But in, in, with respect to the coming of God's kingdom, God's holy new Canaan, if you will, Christians are soldiers, but spirit, it's, it's a spiritual warfare. Uh, and when we use the word spiritual here, we don't mean without consequences for things material or social or political, but we mean empowered by the Holy Spirit. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, Paul says, right, but spiritual. They are mighty. They include prayer and the proclamation of the gospel and Christian witness and deeds of charity. And this is a form of holy warfare that the Christian is engaged in, uh, and in, if you will, in attempting to uh, subjugate by grace, freely, the earth to Christ and his glorious gospel. And so that's why there are so many analogies in Scripture between Old Testament warfare, actual military warfare, and the New Testament Christian life, or Roman soldiers and the Christian spiritual battle in Ephesians 6, for example, where Paul draws upon the... Uh, both the imagery from Isaiah, the Lord as a warrior, and the imagery of a Roman soldier clothed in various breastplates and helmets uh, to set forth his view of the Christian clad in the armor of God for holy spiritual warfare. So it is real warfare. It is warfare with great consequences. But it is not a call to Christians to take up the sword and physically harm people. It is, a, it is a warfare done in the spirit, in humility, and in service through the proclamation of the gospel. But we ought to make clear that it does have eternal, concrete consequences. The meek shall inherit the earth. That's a good point. So there's going to be a new heaven and new earth someday. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and in that new heaven and new earth, righteousness will dwell. Yeah. Right? And, and that's part of the doctrine of the second coming is that yeah. Jesus will judge the nation's inequity and purge unrighteousness and evil from the, from the new cosmos. In a sense, there are three holy realms in the Bible, Eden, Canaan under Israel and Joshua, and the new heavens and the new earth. Mm-hmm. And in those holy realms, God reigns in an absolute, unchallenged, unrivaled way. But we now live in a common realm. And that's why we have to find ways to negotiate solutions through documents like the Constitution or occasionally, um, if, if providence should so ordain, through things like just wars. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the clock. We've got maybe uh, two and a half minutes left. Maybe you can comment just really brief. I've heard of the term sphere sovereignty mm-hmm. in closing. Uh, what does that mean? What's, what's involved in that? Yeah, I think the term comes from the the Dutch Reformed. It was used by uh, the Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper, who eventually was the prime minister of the Netherlands around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and it refers to the idea that there are spheres, and those spheres have their own integrity and their own sovereignty. One sphere would be the sphere of the church, for example. A second would be the sphere of the family. There are things that the family has prerogatives over, privacy about, protections over that even the church can't intrude into. There are things that the church has that the family doesn't have as far as authority goes. And then the state. Now, other sphere sovereignty people might carve out other spheres, schools, um, businesses, the arts, economics. 
Um, and, and the idea is that the, that life is broken out into spheres, and while the spheres might touch and they might overlap, and there might be some some complicated relations between the spheres, they are nevertheless, generally speaking, distinct, and they they possess their own integrity. So, for example, the church is said to often to have um, the authority of the keys, the keys of the kingdom, which we view as the preaching of the word of the preaching of the gospel opening the kingdom, shutting the kingdom through the word. The family has the authority of the, the rod, if you will, the authority to discipline and train children. The state has the sword. The state can tax and coerce and punish. And so uh, these realms are distinct and, and separate, yet you know, they should, in a healthy society, mutually support and sustain one another. And this is why um, a person could be a Christian uh, and and uh, turn the other cheek, if you will, in their personal relationships and, and be meek and mild, a follower of Jesus Christ, fully submitted to the realm of the church, and yet serve as a soldier faithfully in the common realm of the state where God has ordained the ministers of the state as his um, deacons. That's literally the word that Paul uses to punish evil and to protect the good. In, in Romans 13, the ministers of the state are called deacons, ministers. Very interesting. Today I've been talking with Dr. Kevin Sherritt, senior pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Perhaps you'd like to uh, send a question to us. Our email address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. Quick reminder that this broadcast is up on our website as a podcast. Check it out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. And please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.